holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Atención a Nicolas Pepe, encore lui, voilà. Qui crée des choses. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too, Andrew. Can I tell you, I was honestly tempted to make it a goodly morning after watching Spurs-West Ham yesterday. <laughs> it was so sensational. Did you manage to see it? I didn't see it. I was not watching, but uh, I, I caught up on it uh, via Twitter, obviously, social media and things like that. I saw people talking about the the Lanzini goal. Um, some people were suggesting there's a great clip of it doing the rounds with French commentary. I got to say... French commentators are kind of my new thing. Really? I'm, I'm, yeah. They're they're number one right now. Yeah, they're, they're really doing it for me. I'm sort of getting more and more into this. They just get so excited every time there's a goal. Every time. It's brilliant. (laughs) But in particular, that Lanzini goal. Wow. What a hit. And, and the, the best thing about it, of course, you know, is, um, well, not the best thing, but one of the great things about it was the Tottenham player on the edge of the box who just slumps to his knees and puts his his head in his hands. He's, he's almost like um, the end of Platoon. You it know? is Platoon-esque, <laughs> yeah. I think it's the left back they bought from Real Madrid. He just fall. <laughs> it's a great spot. I mean, I had it on. I mean, I was depressed, obviously, by the first half. I saw, saw 3 nil up. And how, do you, some- how do you keep a game like that on? Because if I'm watching Tottenham-West right. Ham, right, and they go 3 nil up, I'm just like, fuck that. I'm not watching it. I can't well, watch this it. Is, this is what I'm saying. I wasn't really watching. I had it on and I had it on mute and I was kind of doing other things on my laptop. And West Ham got a goal back. It must have been 78th minute or something like that. I don't think a Premier League team has ever conceded three goals to concede a lead in the short space of time that Tottenham did. But um, yeah, it went 3-1 and I sort of, you know, I, I quizzically raised an eyebrow but I kept it on mute I wasn't mm. getting excited okay it went it went to 3-2 with a delicious own goal at the near post and at that point I was like okay Ooh. here we go yeah <laughs> my interest Ooh. was peaked the volume came on <laughs> my focus shifted and uh yeah I was absolutely rewarded I mean it's just an incredible goal as well in the last minute of a game what a strike what a um, hit Beautiful, beautiful scenes. And as much as Arsenal can't stand Tottenham, West Ham have their own rivalry with mm. Spurs that's pretty big too. So they will have absolutely... It's one of those moments where you're just gutted, you know, that away fans aren't there to enjoy it. Imagine that silenced stadium. The toilet bowl reduced oh, to silence while well, West Ham go wild. I suppose we have to just console ourselves with the many videos doing the rounds of <laughs> Tottenham fans doing that thing that people do, which still boggles my mind recording yourself and and videoing yourself throughout a game knowing 
knowing. Imagine doing it as like a Tottenham fan. Seriously. Oh. I mean, you just have to accept the fact that you're going to look like a massive prick on countless occasions during the season. So I've been, I've been enjoying those videos of guys go, whoa, we're here. And then like the, is, is the one of them, is it two brothers? Are they brothers? I don't know. There's two guys. I've not seen them. They look, they look almost exactly the same. So I'm assuming they're brothers. I think they did that famous video, um, at the Champions League final as well. Uh, that, right. that was doing that. They filmed themselves and like, it's like, uh, you know, the start of the game. They're like, come on, we're here. It's the Champions League final. Oh my God. I can't believe it. we're so excited. This is going to be amazing. Tottenham in the Champions League final. And then within like a second of the game starting, there's a penalty to Liverpool and they're like, what? No. So their world crushes and, uh, you know, falls in on them straight away. So they were at it yesterday as well. There's a video doing the rounds. I'm sure people will be able to find it. So in the absence of away fans, that will have to do. Mm, I mean, yeah, it is It is the history of the Tottenham, as they say. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, God, I just absolutely thought it was amazing, especially because Gareth Bale came on. It was the glorious homecoming. And then he went through on goal, should have scored, put it wide. He should have sealed the game and didn't. And then the turnaround. Oh. Oh. And, and especially because there's this kind of new narrative around Spurs and when they were 3-0 up and coasting and in fairness they did score some really tasty goals there was a bit of chat going around of like you know well Liverpool aren't quite what they were and Van Dijk's injured and maybe City you know Pep could be leaving at the end of the season could this be the year could this be the year and I love how quickly that evaporated in you know 12 glorious minutes um, all that talk went out the window it's what was the uh, the famous um was it Andre Villas-Boas who, what did he say about Arsenal or t- Tottenham? The negative was, spiral. The negative spiral. I mean, they just he can't help themselves. Arsenal. They cannot oh. help themselves. It is amazing. It's just, you know, um, written into their DNA um, that they will Someone should us. make a documentary about those guys. Yeah, fly on the wall kind of thing. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we uh, will turn our attention from that particular uh, encounter to the big game of the weekend of course uh, and it would be remiss of us not to congratulate the Arsenal women for a 6-1 win in the North London derby against who Tottenham <laughs> what value they're giving us they really really are and did I see I think I'm right in saying that Vivian Miedemar is now the highest goal yeah. scorer in WSL history yeah uh, amazing pretty extraordinary yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. amazing player and uh, an amazing win for the Arsenal women so congratulations to them but look let's get into it then let's let's deal with this uh, game against Manchester City on Saturday evening mm. it's it's one of those games um, that has developed kind of layers in my thinking over the last Mm -hmm. 24, 48 hours. At first, I thought it was quite a a strange game, a difficult game to get a hold of. And now I can kind of see, um, I'm not going to say a bigger picture, but but the more I think about it, the more there is to think about, if that makes sense. Um, You know, a 1-0 defeat is still a defeat. Uh, We often go to Manchester and play in that stadium and end up played off the park and we come away and we talk about how the gulf between the teams is so massive and so obvious and what a big amount of work we have to do etc etc and I don't think that was necessarily the case with this game and there's a, yeah. an element of disappointment and as I wrote in the in the blog today you know does the disappointment come from the fact that we view City as a bit more vulnerable because of the way they started the season or is it because 
we think that we are more capable and perhaps uh, capable of doing better than we did. So it's an interesting one to uh, to consider. Um, I agree. I agree. And actually, I didn't watch this game. I saw probably about half an hour of it live, and then I re-watched it um, last night and this morning, which always gives you a slightly different perspective on it because you're coming into it quite cold, you know, yeah. and you, you know how it all plays out. So I thought it was a, an interesting game to analyse for all the reasons that you said. And I guess kind of one of my overriding thoughts is, like, the, the closer you get or the smaller the gap gets, the greater the expectations become. And actually, mm. I thought, I sensed, you know, flicking through my timeline on Saturday after this game, a lot of kind of frustration and a sense of, you know, we really could have got something there. And I have to say that I think I reflect quite positively on that. I think, you know, City are more vulnerable, but we're also, you know, much less liable to just go there and get absolutely blown away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, there was a, a comment here on Twitter from... Oh, B, I see what he's done there. Be Serious 83, at Be Serious 83, um, who says, I think uh, people aren't disappointed by the result per se, more the approach. Um, uh, we decided to play hoofball uh, for 70 minutes of that game. So, uh, you know, I don't necessarily agree w- with that part of it, but I, I think the approach is, is certainly something that we can discuss and we will discuss as we get into the, the, the bones of this analysis. Um, because... You know, there are there are aspects of this where I definitely feel we could have done better and we could have done more. And I suppose that goes right to the very start and it goes to the team selection and it goes very much to the system that we played and the deployment of Willian as centre forward, false nine, top of whatever part of midfield you want to call it, whatever role that was. Um, So... I think in here there is an element of, this is one of the layers that I was talking about, Um, there is an element of this being Manchester City versus Arsenal, but it's also Pep Guardiola versus Mikel Arteta. That's absolutely right. And I think it's understandable to me that someone like Arteta, who has worked with Guardiola, who has, you know, who's been a mentor to him and somebody who he respects, et cetera, et cetera, who I heard him say over the weekend, he still thinks is, is the best coach in the world. You know, there's an element of playing himself against Guardiola and trying to do something that maybe Guardiola wouldn't expect or trying to do something clever in inverted commas mm-hmm. tactically. Um, I'm not saying that using Willian there was clever because it wasn't and it didn't work. But I think that was a factor in the way we set up in this game. And I don't think we can ignore that. I think that's 100% right. And I think we have to kind of accept that probably every time Mikel Arteta comes up against Pep Guardiola, they are going to try and outthink each other. And... You know, to an extent, it might end up too clever by halves. And I think you could look at what Arsenal tried to do on Saturday and and say that about it, particularly in terms of the Willian thing. But if you look at Guardiola's team as well, I mean, he played a pretty mm. unconventional system. It was kind of, you know, Michael Cox called it a 3-3-1-3, a kind of classic Ajax shape. We've not seen him do that a lot in the Premier League. So, you know, I think there's a degree to which, and it had Sterling in like a central role, which he never normally plays and blah, mm. blah. So, you know, they were trying to outdo each other, trying to surprise each other. They know each other's way of working intimately. uh, And, you know, they were trying to produce a surprise. And I think, 
I actually think for both of them, to an extent, uh, it wasn't enormously successful. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I fear that that might happen every time we see these managers on the touchline together. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it will probably um, die Diminish down yeah, d- yeah, a little bit, you know, and I think as Arteta gets more experienced and, and what have you, this will become less of a thing. Like, he, d- he won't have to... I don't mean to say prove himself to Guardiola because I don't think that's his intention, but I think it's sort of there in in the back of his mind a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it is two managers who know each other inside out. Guardiola said something interesting afterwards. He said he knows everything about us. He knows everything yeah. about our players and our dressing room. And he said, I don't know that about him. Um, how much you want to read into that, I don't quite know. I, I don't quite know how much... Um, Arteta's knowledge of the city system played into the, the decision that he made to start Willian in, in that role. Um, he did suggest it was a tactical thing because of the way that city play and he wanted to draw players out, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but let's talk about that then. Let's talk about Willian in that role. How, <laughs> how surprised were you to see him? in that position because when the team came out it looked like Aubameyang was going to be playing centre forward because you know here's a world class striker we've got Pepe we've got Willian we've got Aubameyang in the front three surely surely there's no reason to play him on the left um, when you don't have Lacazette or Enketia in the team so it was a, a bit of a weird one I was looking at it at first going is this is this right is this actually what's happening here um so yeah your thoughts you know when when it became clear that William was going to be playing there I think it look I, I don't think it works and it's very difficult to make the case that it did I think it's sort of a bit more comprehensible if you think about it you know when Lacazette was playing in that role in the big games last season against City and Liverpool, it was almost like he was the more withdrawn of the three, you know, and, and Pepe and Aubameyang in those games were kind of pushed higher in a, in a V shape and they were making the runs in the channels. And, and I, I like that. I don't think that that kind of inverted front three is inherently bad as long as... Pepe and Aubameyang are picking up those central areas, you know, and getting ahead of the, the man. I think what was annoying about <laughs> the game on Saturday is that Willian often was just kind of the furthest man forward. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, he's clearly there as like a bit of a pressing agent and to provide some rotation in the front three, but it just never, it never really clicked. And I found myself watching it thinking like, I don't think, I sort of don't think he's better at that job than Lacazette, to be honest. Or in so Kenya. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it felt like, I mean, I don't know if, it, it felt like including Willian for Willian's sake, if you see what I mean. I, I just don't yeah. see that he's better in that position than other our other options there, even if even if you do want to play Aubameyang out wide. Do you know what I mean? We've mm. still got Lacazette. We've still got Nketiah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I saw you pointed out on your blog and you were right that the chances that we had uh, in that game came predominantly when Aubameyang moved into more central positions. I, I think yeah. part of that is that he got away from Carl Walker, who, as much as I don't like saying it, you know, was a, had a very, very good game. He um, did, yeah. I mean, he's he's quick and he's strong, and you know, this perhaps is uh, one of the one of the games where. Uh, you know, you have to look at the the manager and look at what he did and say mm. that it, it didn't really work on any level. Um, mm. And I, I want to sort of uh, couch that by by saying, look, he's still 
less than 12 months into his first job as a manager. So there are going to be days when things go well, and there are going to be days when things don't go so well. And I think we have to kind of acknowledge that and accept that and say that um, he is going to try things and some things will work and some things won't work. And it it's really how he learns from games like this um, that will uh, help develop him as a manager. But at the same time, you know, I don't think he did um, as much right as I would have liked. I think the Willian thing was, you know, was obvious that wasn't working by half time. Um, yeah, yeah. I and I'm a bit surprised that we didn't do more to change it, particularly as just before halftime, we did have those two really good chances, one uh, for Bukayo Saka and one for Aubameyang himself when Aubameyang was in those central areas. And to me, that was just like banging the drum for a halftime change, even in terms of formation, shift the formation, play him down the middle and you make him and us much more dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I say that... Uh, but also, I can see that this is a game in which we didn't get our arses handed to us at Man City like we normally do. And I think there was an element of not wanting that to happen, which played into a kind of cautiousness um, in the approach and in the in-game management, if you like. Because we get to 70 minutes and I was like, come on, let's let's have a go here. Let's try and try and do something we could be a bit more adventurous we don't we don't have to throw the kitchen sink at it we don't have to go hell for leather but let's try and be a bit more progressive let's try and be a bit more aggressive in terms of how we're playing the game but i think he was maybe caught between a rock and a hard place in that 70 minutes you know if we could just nick a goal we can we can get something from this he didn't want to open us up he didn't want to expose us i think Absolutely. And without wishing to kind of jump to the end of the game too much, you know, there's a moment, there is a moment, David Luiz goes down the right-hand side, swings a really, really good cross in. And in a crazy way, you know, if a Batman gets his head on that, you come away with a point, you're like, well, it was a tactical masterclass. But I, yeah, I agree, yeah. my issues are more with the last 20 minutes because um, I, I thought actually Arsenal had a pretty good first 20 minutes. And you yeah. know, I was listening to the commentary today. Gary Neville, uh, at, it's just before City score. Actually, he says Arsenal have had a pretty good twenty minutes. They have confident. They have an authority in the game. And having you know, I know we will bear a lot of scars from these big fixtures away from home. Yeah. But you know, it was a it was a cagey but relatively even contest. I think in mm. that opening twenty minutes. Um, once City got the goal, I think clearly. You know, there was a little period where things swung a bit in their favour before Arsenal came back into it towards the end of the half. Yeah. I mean, that's my takeaway on this. There are things, and very obvious things, which frustrate me about the game. But overall, I don't feel quite as disappointed with it as, as some people do. And that's not to tell anyone how they should feel or anything like it. Um, you know, because I well, do I- think there were some... I mean, I I, I can... I want Arsenal to be a more potent team, a more uh, attacking team. Those elements in our game, I think, are not quite where they should be. So I I really understand frustration about that. But I also think when you're going to uh, Man City away, where you've had such a bad time, where you've been basically pulled apart every single game we've played there for the last couple of years, they've scored three goals. It's been routine for them. It's been easy for them. Um, you know, I can understand a, 
a more cautious approach, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and my, do you know what? My main emotion coming out of this game is sort of regret that this was our next fixture. Because if you look back to our last game, which was Sheffield United, mm. um, and sort of what it felt like was unlocked in the second half against them in terms of the potential uh, attacking force that exists in this team. I, I do understand why going to the Etihad, you know, Arteta didn't just think, well, we'll just do what we did in the last 20 minutes at home to Sheffield United. Like, I, I, I really yeah. have a lot of, you know, appreciation for his dilemma there. And I think it's... Uh, it's reopened a conversation, uh, which is a valid one, about Arsenal as an attacking force. And it comes in a week in which we've really seen Arsene Wenger popping up on every possible chat show and interview and newspaper talking about, you know, the beauty of flying together as a team. And yeah. we feel far away from that at the moment. But I do think that I also feel like, well, I think I saw a stat that Arteta's played a third of his games or something mad against opponents in the top six. Uh, and I feel for him in that regard. He's had a lot of big games against big opposition. Yeah, I'm tired of playing Liverpool and I'm tired of yeah. playing Man City. I really am. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, it doesn't, you know, we've got some more big games coming up, but I'd love a run against, like, you know, I, don't, I mean, the problem is there aren't that many bad teams in the Premier League anymore. So, it's you, you know, it feels like maybe it's just nostalgia, but it feels like in the old days you get five or six games where you'd look at and you'd go, oh, yeah, well, we'll, we'll have control of the ball in those games. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, well, no, be I think you're right because, on. you know, back then there was maybe two teams that could win the title. There were some bigger teams, you know, uh, around, but there was a yeah. lot of so-called... Uh, cannon fodder if you like uh, but now there's a big six slash big seven potentially with you know Everton involved as well and you know the the I think there is a, a measure of competitiveness in there but I do take what you mean regarding the the stature of the opposition that we're facing um, so I mean let, let's let's get into this a little bit more then because I think there are there's a discussion to be had isn't there about uh, how you build an attacking team um, and can you build an attacking team unless you provide some sort of stability and platform for uh, for the players to express themselves in an attacking mm-hmm. way, right? So we had a really terrible defensive record um, last season, maybe the season before as well. We conceded a lot of goals. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnny B, who's at Johnny underscore B underscore AFC, um, says, is Arteta getting more out of the defense than is being focused on? Second least goals conceded in the league, and we've already played the top two away. So how long do we have to bed in this defensive improvement before we can start to take more risks from an attacking point of view? And let me just say that I don't think playing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as your striker is in any way taking a risk. No, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of analogies doing the rounds, aren't there, about foundations and, you know, you've got yeah, yeah, yeah. certain building blocks in place before you can have the pretty bits on the top. And uh, I understand that. And I do think clearly Arteta is trying to implement, you know, some structural integrity to this team. I mean, structure is sort of the key word, isn't it, for what Arteta is doing at Arsenal at the present time. Uh, And I can see that when he came in, that felt like the remedial thing to do, you know, to provide, you know, simplicity uh, and a base for this team. But, you know, that has to... 
uh, work at both ends of the field. And Arsenal are finding ways to play out from the back. They're finding ways to keep possession in their own third, but they're not finding ways to hold possession higher up the pitch. Um, mm. And it's a really interesting one. Like I had a conversation with Michael Cox about this last week where he was saying to me that, uh, well, you know, part of the reason that City are able to hold the ball higher up the pitch is that if you get good enough at playing out from the back, people stop pressing you. Yeah. So at the moment, Arsenal are still in a phase where people think, oh, are they a bit vulnerable playing it out? Let's press them. And so you end up you know, very congested in your own third. Now, nobody presses City because they know how good they are on the ball. Yeah, so they, they just pop it around you and in they yeah. go, yeah. So so in a sort of kind of counterintuitive way, the insistence on playing it back, I think in the long term, will help us you know, have the ball higher up the field. The question mm. then becomes, I think, have you got the players to really make the difference and make you dangerous in that part of the pitch? And Arsenal, you know, against City, when they did get in the final third, when the intricacy was there enough for them to advance mm. there, you know, with the exception of Bukayo Saka, I'm not sure that it felt like we did necessarily have those players. Yeah, like I'm, I'm curious as to what Willian's instructions were and what his, you know, role yeah. was. And I think sometimes I think we forget that there is a real specialization in playing up front and being a striker uh, in terms of the movement and in terms of game awareness and looking at what's happening and the kind of movements you make and the runs you make, which might open up a pass or open up space for somebody else. You know, and that, that I think, is where we really miss, um, you know, Aubameyang as a, a centre-forward because he has all those instincts and Willian does not. He's just not mm. that kind of player. So part of me is... Um, you know, I don't, I'm not very, um, I was going to say I'm a bit underwhelmed by Willian. Uh, I'm not very whelmed by him anyway, that's for sure. Um, but part of that is offset by acknowledging that he was being asked to play in a role which doesn't suit him. Uh, and I think it was a mistake. He didn't link with either Pepe or Aubameyang. He made three passes to Pepe, not one pass to Aubameyang. Which tells you that whatever he was being instructed to do, or maybe it was down to City blocking off those avenues, I'm not quite sure, but it didn't work. So it didn't, as a tactical uh, experiment or, or whatever it was that Mikel Arteta wanted from this, it, it just didn't work. Um, but where we did have some joy, of course, as I said, was when he went central, when Bukayo Saka had more space on that left-hand side. And to me, that's like, that's sort of singing blueprint right there. You know, there is something that we could work on. There is something that we could develop with Bukayo Saka playing on the left, Aubameyang in the middle, and you have two players who uh, complement each other in a way because they did combine to make that really good chance. Saka is a good dribbler. He can find space. He can make things happen. And Aubameyang has the movement, the, the, the instincts around the penalty area to just uh, find space and to get chances. He had that one chance that Ederson made a good save from as well. So, you know, th there to me is part of the solution in terms of making this team better from an attacking point of view. Yeah, I, I think clearly that's a, you know, there's a chemistry there and I would like to see more of it as well. Um, and, you know, even if I can understand, I can almost understand why he did the William thing. I don't think we'll see it again, which I think is sort of the truest test of whether or not it was remotely successful. Um, I, I was thinking about this because, 
Arsene Wenger, and I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but he's very present at the moment. (laughs) You can't get away from him. He was brilliant at constructing the chemistry of a front three or a front two, Mm. you know, on Rear Burkamp. But when he put together his attacking trios, you know, his left wing, right wing, centre forward, I felt he always got really delicate, good balance of qualities. You know, whether that was that he had Theo Walcott who provided, you know, pace and goal threat on the right and, I don't know, Sammy Nasri Mm. or Santi Cazorla on the left. You know, he had central players who could be a fulcrum, who could rotate in and out. It was something he did really well. And I was thinking about why it is that Arteta is slightly struggling with that and why there seems to be this issue with Aubameyang over his position. And I think Aubameyang is absolutely brilliant. I'm really happy he signed. This is in no way a criticism of him. I feel like you always have to provide that caveat. But Mm. if you think about the things that Arteta might want from a centre-forward, I imagine he would say, well, someone who can provide a fulcrum, someone who is a, a presser, and if not those qualities, maybe someone who's like a dribbler. And as brilliant as Aubameyang is, those are not any of those things are not his strengths necessarily from what I see. So you have to find ways to then kind of offset those within the composition of that front three to sort of complete your his mm. kind of pie chart, you know. And I just don't think he's found the trio that that does that yet. Yeah, I mean, you could also say that what Arteta wants from a centre forward isn't necessarily something that uh, is sacrosanct or set in stone. You can change what you want. Sure. You I mean, know? It, ha- um, it has been thus far. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. But, you know, thus far, Arsenal under Arteta haven't really often clicked from an attacking point of view. So perhaps it's an area that uh, needs a bit of a rethink because mm-hmm. you know what Lacazette gives us at center forward what Enkedia gives us uh, at center forward um I don't know that it's more than what Aubameyang would give us even if the um uh what's the word I'm looking for here even if their uh fucking characteristics are different you know Mm-mm-mm. so well yeah it, it won't work if you ask Aubameyang to do no what Willian's been doing or what Lacazette's been doing. That's but, not going to be exactly. how it works. But don't ask a guy who can do what he does to do that. Find a way to 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 let him do what he does best, which mm. is, you know, um, I know, look, I, the, the Aubameyang on the left thing, it feels like a tired discussion. And, and part of it, I think is because we don't have enough goals from other areas of the team. So you play Aubameyang on the left, he still gets you goals. You can put a striker in, you can put a a right winger in, someone like Pepe. You know, I I can kind of see some logic in it to that point of view. Mm. But if you want to start making progress from an attacking perspective, if you want to do something different with your team, maybe you have to think about doing something different. You know, and I think yeah, what I we've agree. got, what we've got, um, is in Bakayo Saka, uh, who I think deserves an awful lot of credit for the way that he played against Man City and was a real positive. We've got a young man here who is basically telling you, by the way he's playing, I should be in the team, and I should be in the team in a, a, a in the opposition half more often mm-hmm. than not. Right, no. as a wing back, I know he can do the job and he can still get forward, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me, he's crying out to be played on the left of a front three. Every time I see him play, 
this season and last season, you know, what he brings in that area of the pitch. We don't have anyone else who can do that on that side yeah. anyway. You know, I know Martinelli is, is, um, is sidelined for a little while, but he's a different kind of player as well. Um, so that's what I, you know, I, I think Saka is staking a claim for a place in the position that Arteta likes to use Aubameyang. That gives him a problem if he only views Aubameyang as somebody who can play there, but it's not a problem if he just says, well, why not play this striker as a striker? Yeah, true. I mean, I like Saka in central spaces as well. I mean, you know, I do think when he comes inside, he's he's very, very dangerous, but there's nothing to prohibit him doing that. You know, if he's starting as a left winger, look how much Aubameyang does it, uh, you know, currently. Mm. Um, I thought Saka was really good in this game. He looks like a really... You know, sometimes when I watch teams like Liverpool and City, I do experience this kind of envy at the combination of technique and athleticism that some of their players display. And Saka has that. You know, the way he moves away from people mm. shows such a combination of kind of skill and power, uh, especially in someone so young. It's incredibly eye-catching. And yeah, he was he was involved in everything good we did. And I think he's he's kind of impossible to leave out at this point he's he's crying out like you say yeah to play to play more football and mm. and i think you're right in advanced areas is definitely where we see the best of him what about um what about their goal uh does it merit a great deal of discussion um there was a lot of chat about bellerin showing foden inside but i mean foden is left-footed so i had a bit of sympathy with him there do you know what i mean like he yeah. thought he was going to go outside I mean, if you look later in the game, Tierney got done much worse by Mares a couple of times yeah. and produced good saves from Leno. I don't think there's masses to say about the goal. I have a nagging thing that people are going to think it's because I'm in love with Emiliano Martinez, but I do feel like sometimes with Leno, he makes good saves, but like they don't go away from the goal as much as I would like. Yeah. And it's... You know, it, it's something I've noticed a few times. We've gotten away with it sometimes, sometimes not others. I think he made a couple of other really good saves in this game. So, I, again, I'm not trying to come down hard on him, but it is just a little trait that he does have. Yeah, I mean, he... he yeah, I'm looking at it again. I mean, it's a well-worked goal. I think there are a number of things. Obviously, Bellerin, Leno... I wonder if he could have just reacted a little more quickly when he went down for the save. You know, those goalkeeping things you see where they get up and they, I think he kind of slips as well. Uh, Gabriel maybe a little too far from Sterling. Um, mm, yeah. You yeah. know, just a combination of things. And, you know, one of the... one of the, They get the breaks as well, right? Like it, it literally breaks to Sterling, you yeah. know. There's a degree to which you have to sort of hold your hands up a bit. And, and, and the funny thing is, I mean, we we could have gone in level after that I mean you know we mentioned mm. I actually think the one where Saka has the shot saved yeah. would have been ruled out because he was offside when Tierney plays it to him not when Aubameyang plays it to him so oh god imagine the frustration of that yeah. fucking hell Aubameyang was the opposite he was yeah. obviously pulled back but he's on yeah um, but the penalty incident I mean for me that's a penalty all day Look, Arteta was obviously very exercised about it afterwards um, when he said, how the hell have you checked that? Uh, or, you know, the, the, the situation that they decided they didn't need to recheck it. Yeah. Um, I don't really get it. I mean, uh, Michael Cox, owner marking, was saying to me on Twitter that it would have been an indirect free kick. So, really? yeah. Oh, we should start kicking people's heads off more. 
<laughs> I, I think anywhere else, anywhere else on the pitch, and the referee blows his whistle straight away for a high foot. Do you not think? Yeah, of course, of course. So, uh, is it an indirect free kick? I, I'll have to, I'll have to look that. Up. I'm sure he's right. Uh, Michael says, uh, at the risk of blowing up my own mentions, I believe this would have been an indirect free kick rather than a, rather than a penalty, as there was no contact. I don't quite um, know what the rule is right. there, but I'll defer to Michael on that one. Yeah, I, 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 I can't believe it was nothing, though. I just can't believe no, it was nothing. I find that amazing. Mm. I mean, there were a few situations this weekend with yeah, tackles yeah, yeah. and challenges that weren't picked up that were kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, that changes the complexion of the game. Yeah. Just on Gabriel, by the way, I thought he had a really good game. Yeah. I think, he, I think he's been good the last I, few games. I think in the in the cold light of day, I, I remembered a couple of misplaced passes a bit too much. Um, right. And, I, you know, having rewatched bits of it and, and had more time to consider his performance, I thought he was very good. Um, you know, sort of interesting that... Uh, I'm just looking at this again. There's a... When we talk about the chances, we've talked about the two... Obviously, that um, Saka had and Aubameyang had, mm. but there's a Pepe header around the 25th minute, 26th minute, uh, uh, that yeah, he puts yeah. wide that he probably should do a little better with. I'm not saying it was a really good chance. And wasn't there a header very early in the in the second half as well, where he hurt himself and mm-hmm. uh, a bit when he landed? You're you know, right, yeah. so there were there were moments and there were things, I think, for all the disappointment that we have about this, there was more to like about this Arsenal performance than many of the others we've seen against Man City away in recent years, you know, and that's not to say people shouldn't be frustrated by elements of it. Of course they should. And I do think that late on, geez, I'm just looking at another one. There was a save from Leno that he pushed straight back into the path of uh, Mares. So that goes back to what you were saying there. Mm. Um I've lost my train of thought here completely. Yeah, no, I mean... The, the, the last 20 minutes. The last I 20 minutes. I don't yeah. really see what the point of bringing Thomas Partey on for seven minutes is. Just don't. No, no. Uh, I, it was a slightly strange... I mean, it felt like... Well, let's just give him some time. But at a point where you're one goal down in a game, mm. that's maybe not the change you want to make. But I think also um, that does tell you a little bit about our areas our, our options in the middle of the park you know we're all excited about party we all think mm. it's going to be a big signing but you know we only got one of the two pieces we really needed in the midfield so yeah we didn't necessarily have that option to come off the bench how forgiving do you think people would have been if let's say in the last 20 minutes we had gone for it we'd really you know push forward and and what have you and we'd I shipped think- a couple of goals do you think there would be the same understanding of you know, well, at least we went for it. I like that approach. I, I'm glad we were aggressive. Or would it be like, well, there's another three nil defeat to Man City. What do you expect? I think it would have been the latter, and I think people would have said, and I probably would have said it as well. I'm not saying I'm better than this. Uh, you know, not only did we not create anything in the early stages, but then we got you know ripped apart as soon as mm. we tried to go forward. And you know, these games, these big games, are decided on the sort of finest finest margins mm. um the the fact that we would have been criticized for it by the way doesn't make it the wrong decision no 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 and no I, i'm and i think that's what we should have done gone for it i think we should have said we're one goal down here we've got good attacking players let's see what we can do you know you stay in the game for the first half sure 
yeah. I can buy that. Maybe even till the hour mark. But at a certain point, the shackles do have to come off. The handbrake, you know, has to be released. And uh, it never really happened, did it? No, it didn't. It didn't. Um, and that is, you know, that is a disappointment. Uh, because I, I think there is an element of, you know, we feel we're capable of more or should be capable of more, but also that Manchester City, because of what they've done so far this season and, and you know, the way their team is being restructured a little bit, that they are more vulnerable. They are mm. more vulnerable. And and this is where it comes back to Arteta's in-game management, and we can question that and, you know, obviously still think that we're, we're on the right road. But I think we also have to remember that there are going to be days where his inexperience is a factor and i think that that was one of the days or saturday was one of those days a little bit yeah and i think if you're looking for encouragement i do think that these teams the likes of Liverpool city are approaching us with a, a much greater deal of respect in some ways in the way that they're playing i think if you if you see their managers after they beat us uh, you know, it's not routine for them quite in quite mm. the same way, even though I know the results, you know, still not going in our favour away from home. And I, I do think that, you know, the we are moving in the right direction, but we're definitely not where we want to be yet. And this discussion about how we improve going forward, how we attack, yeah, I think is going to dominate this season because... You know, I think everybody has a, a measure of patience and an understanding that, you know, the, the fundamentals have come first for Arteta. But, you know, at some point we have to start to to move beyond that. Yeah, I mean, that's the next step, isn't it? You know, apply mm-hmm. some structure, apply some uh, measure of stability to the team, stop them doing the stupid things that they used to do. That's fine. But you can't sort of exist on that plane forever. You you can't plateau, you know, you have to keep improving. And look, the message from Arteta is is consistent in that regard, that he does want us to uh, improve and he does want us to be a more expansive team. A couple of weeks ago, he was saying, look, I'd love to be the team that dominates the ball and makes uh, 10,000 passes and has 50 shots. So I think that's kind of what he wants. But now we're at a point where, um, you know, we can't do that. We still can't do the toe toe-to-toe thing with a team like City or Liverpool but where we want to see it perhaps is in games against uh, I'm not going to say smaller teams because we've got Leicester next we've got Manchester United after that but these are the teams that perhaps are uh, our level right if we Mm. accept that that City and Liverpool are still a little bit away from us maybe not as far as they used to be whether that's down to them going backwards a bit or us going forwards a little bit is another discussion but you know it's these games and how we play against the likes of Leicester and United and Wolves and Tottenham and what we do against the teams that we are, in inverted commas, expected to beat, that is going to really play into the perception of the job that Arteta is doing. Absolutely. Uh, But, I mean, just sort of to ask you what you think, Mm -hmm. do you think Arteta is a coach who will ever sort of... um, what can I say, embrace a kind of attacking freedom in the way that we're maybe accustomed to seeing some Arsenal teams do in the past? Or do you think he's always going to be a structural guy? Because my slight suspicion, and it's not something that I am necessarily opposed to, is that he's always going to be sort of structure first. It just seems to be quite fundamental to him. Um, I think, yeah, he is going to be a structure guy. 
But I don't think that means necessarily that everything is going to be completely rigid. Mm. Um, You would hope that applying structures will allow for a measure of uh, expression or creativity or or whatever it might be, right? Um, I feel like he has had a lot to put right or a lot to correct um, in terms of what he gets from the players and what he gets from the team. And I think, you know, another pleasing aspect to the way that we played on, on Saturday is the fact that we were still passing it around, playing football, playing it out from the back, you know, against a team as good as Man City, who mm-hmm. didn't press us as much as they might have done or have done. Certainly mm-hmm. when you look at the when you look back at the game that we played just after the restart. And I know it was a different game because because of the injury to Shaka, because of the inju- injury to Pablo Marie, because of the David Luiz clown show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But City's approach that day was much more aggressive. You know, they Absolutely. didn't they didn't worry about us. And I'm not saying they were overly worried about us on Saturday either, but I just feel like they knew we were a slightly different team in terms of what we can do with the ball at the back um, yeah. and what we're capable of. And, and that if you can apply some of those uh, passing moves from the back, then we can cause them problems. So I, I think I think it's going to be incremental. I don't think he's ever going to be like Arsene Wenger, go out and play and find your true inner attacker within yourself and you know roam free across the grasslands and (laughs) and do what you want with the football that's not gonna happen but i do feel like there is more to come and i feel like like would you say man city under pep guardiola are an attacking team well yeah i mean yes i would yeah i would yeah and I would say it doesn't quite have the joie de vivre of, you know, the Invincibles. You know, it's it's not as, to me, as exciting a style of play as some of what we've seen at Arsenal in the past. Sure, it's more mechanical, it's, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, as much as I try and look for the differences between Arteta and Pep, there are clearly enormous parallels. And I think that whatever we do will have that sort of mechanical mm. quality to it. But, you know... It, their mechanical qualities are very effective. They're, they're a good, they've got a good tin opener, okay, basically. Yeah, for sure. But they've also, and have also had um, players of exceptional quality to add whatever flourishes you want to the, to the mechanics that Guardiola puts in place, right? So when you have a David Silva, when you have a Kevin De Bruyne, when you have um, Leroy Sané, who was there, and when you have a, an amazing striker like Sergio Aguero, you know, Sterling, Mares, um, all of these guys, uh, Bernardo Silva, who I thought was, you know, really good against us on, on Saturday. You know, the, the quality of players is also an issue, right? And, and we're, course. we're some way away from that. But, but what I suppose I, I'm trying to say is that I'm looking at a manager uh, in Mikel Arteta who was brought up at Barcelona, you know, who worked with Guardiola, who worked with Arsene Wenger. And I know he's had some more prosaic managers in his time. Uh, if you think about David Moyes at Everton and um, uh, Walter Smith at Rangers. But, you know, he's a guy who who's grounding in the game, whose education in the game has come um, at Barcelona, you know, 
uh, it, it influences him and uh, Guardiola, obviously. So I don't fear that we're just going to be this kind of... Um, that all he wants is to be this kind of, uh, what way would you put it, functional team. I think he definitely wants more, but I do think it's going to take time. Yeah, and every good team in the world, <laughs> it's not a particularly you know clever observation to say, that they have, un, as you just said, unbelievable attacking individual quality. And, you know, as good as someone like Bukayo Saka or Nicolas Pepe are, you know, we're effectively hoping and asking for them to be the level of Sterling, you know, Salah, Mane. Uh, you know, that's where we're trying to get. And so there may be a period where those players have to kind of bridge that gap and make that step and that is not easy. But they are the closest thing that we have. So, yeah, I think I, I essentially agree with you. I think it's going to be really interesting the next few weeks because, like you say, teams like Leicester and United, I think, are more of our level than above our level. There's also a run of three Europa League games in a week, which, you know, I know it's the Europa League, blah, 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 there'll be rotation. Mm. But it will also be interesting and instructive, perhaps, how Arteta attacks those games. Yep. You know, attack being the operative word. You know, how he sets up for them and against teams who are probably not of our level, not of our quality. Can yeah. we dominate? Can we break them down? That's going to be a really interesting test, even without necessarily all our first-team players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. Very true. And there is, of course, a game on Thursday against uh, Rapid Vienna. So, look, anything else in part one, or should we move on and do uh, do some questions? No, I think let's just go back to where we started, enjoy laughing at Tottenham again, yep. uh, and then move straight on to part two. Okay, let's do it. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerelly mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog and on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. So let's get into questions. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes... Um, to what we were talking about towards the end of the the first half, I think. Mm. Mm. It comes from the Discord from Aaron, who says, would you or the rest of the fan base be nearly as forgiving if it was another manager instead of Arteta doing what he does right now? 
I'm I, laughing because I, I just saw that question and was about to ask you the same one. <laughs> I got there first. Yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated by this actually because I'm I'm it strikes me that there's a perception that we're doing badly in some way. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm yeah. not saying that there. Are, obviously, there are things we can improve, and obviously, there are things that we uh, can get frustrated by. But I think overall, when you consider where we were when Arteta took over last December, December twenty sixth, whatever it was, was his first game. Um, maybe it was a little bit before that, but you know where we are now mm. and what we expect is a long way from where we were which suggests to me that he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that I think he is doing a good job. And and personally. is is that not um why I think it's uh you know the context of it is why we might be considered to be a bit more forgiving. That's a young manager in his first job, less than 12 months into it, picked up the pieces of what was a fucking mess. Um and appears to be taking us in the right direction, even if there are a few bumps on the road. Is that not the the very essence of it? Yes. I mean, you won an FA Cup along the way as well. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Um, I think he is doing a good job. Absolutely. Do I think that uh, the fact that we're sort of warmly disposed to him as, I don't know, an ex-Arsenal player, mm. do I think that helps his perception? Almost certainly does as well. Um we well a lot of fans I'll only speak for myself I like him I think he seems like a, a good guy I like what he brings I like the way he talks about the game I like the way he talks about the club and so all these factors weigh into my assessment of him mm. which is a positive one um, I do think there's a sort of interesting ideological thing where I think that basically you know Arsenal for the last, you know, the last thirty years, or sort of, you know, since nineteen ninety five, roughly, have been associated with a certain type of football, and I do think that anything that's not that football won't quite sit right. And it's not even that it's what people want; it's just sort of conditioning. Do you know mm. what I mean? We're, that's what we're used to seeing. It's what we associate Arsenal with, which is mad for someone who has supported Arsenal since the 80s and 90s, you know, when they were associated with a very different type of football that was equally successful yeah. kind of in its own way. Um, and I think, you know, when Arteta came in, I do think because of his association with modern Arsenal and with Arsene Wenger uh, and with the attractive football that Guardiola played, there was a sort of hope of, oh, you know, it's going to be, maybe it's going to be Harlem Globetrotter stuff. And as we've just discussed, I don't think it is quite ever going to be that. Um, but yeah, I, I think... Isn't this also just the nature of analysis and, and conversation that we, you know, we we look to focus on where we can improve, and so that's sort of driving the conversation at the moment because we are in a healthier place. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, there is something, isn't there, to be said about let's say someone like Unai Emery who was more difficult to warm to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of easier to be critical of somebody who um, you're not. As connected to someone who you hate. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I was going for, but I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Some people did, but you know. Um, so look, I, I I think the the overall context of it is is uh, why um, I, I don't even think he's getting a an easy ride. I think people are just looking at 
what he's doing generally, I think. Um, there are always exceptions, but I think in general, people are looking at what he's doing in a pretty balanced way because they understand what a big job he's had to do, you know? Mm, mm. I think, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think he's getting an easy ride because I think, especially among the Arsenal community, everything is so micro-analysed and we're looking at every aspect of performance. Mm. I think probably outside of that, he might be getting a slightly easier ride. You know, maybe people outside the club who aren't as close to it are looking at it and saying, wow, you know, Arteta came in and suddenly people want to stay at Arsenal, people want to join Arsenal, they want an FA Cup. You know, maybe that picture looks a bit rosy, but I feel like certainly in the conversations I'm having with Arsenal fans, people are, you know, aware of both sides of it. And, you know, while while the glass remains half full, it's it's not... um, spilling over sure okay let's have another question um okay alistair wood ali boy 82 says on thursday arsenal will be playing in front of fans for the first time since march do you think this will affect us and if so will it be in a positive or negative way no you think it won't affect i don't think it will affect anyone to be honest no i mean it's not going to be a white hot uh, atmosphere. Uh, the only, do you know what? The only way in which I think it might is the playing out from the back thing. You know, will if if fans and players sort of gear, you know, get each other going and we're getting pressed a lot more, will our nerve hold quite as immaculately as it had in completely silent stadiums? Will our players be able to cope with the uh, with the vitriol and the whistling the atmosphere of from? The edge. 30% of uh, Rapid yeah. Vienna fans who are allowed in. What is it, about 20, 30% of the stadium? I must say, I don't know, don't actually. Know. So it's not going to be right? full. Yeah, it's not going to be full. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's not like we're going from zero to 60, is it? Uh, no, no. So I don't think it will have a tremendous impact. But, I mean... It'll be. In, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I remember I've talked about this on the show before, but I remember seeing clips from Brighton Chelsea, which was a, a test event for Premier League fans in a friendly just before the season started, which had I think like twenty percent fans, something mm. like that. And it, you know, they did actually generate an atmosphere. Look, I would love to watch a game on television with a real, authentic, non-digital atmosphere. So. Who knows? I've got my fingers crossed they've got the loud people from Vienna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that stadium. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's a question from Jacob Long at Long underscore Jacob. Uh, he says, we finished the season with Champions League football. The football is described as boring and pragmatic. How do you feel? I don't really understand the question. Sorry, Jacob. What? what do you so think? We, 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 we finished the season with Champions League football. So we finish in the top four. But the oh, football that we play, into the future. yes. But the football that we play is described as boring and pragmatic. How do you feel? Um, I would be fine with it. Honestly, I would. But then I was fine with great chunks of the Emery reign that people weren't fine with. Um, so don't listen to me. But I, <laughs> I, I honestly would be okay with that because I really do think that. Champions League football is incredibly important in terms mm. of us making steps forward. And I think that if it requires a pragmatic slant to get us the points, which it's all about at this stage, to to make that step. And then from there, 
you know, who knows? Maybe we can afford to go back and, and buy Husem Awar next season or whatever mm. else it is. You know, I, I could definitely um, make my peace with it, especially as, uh, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, well, I was going to say, especially I was, especially as I'm not paying for you know a season ticket to watch it every week. But uh, with the way TV costs are going, I might as well be. Frankly. Yeah, I can know. What, what about you? <sighs> I don't yeah. think most people will be fine with it. That I would just add that caveat. I think I'm slightly an exception in that. Um, it's one of those. It's a difficult one. Like, do you enjoy? Uh, the journey or just arriving at the destination, mm. you know? Mm, mm, mm. Um, I, I think, you know, for the team to make progress, top four would be great. And if that's what we have to do to get there, then so be it. I think you could rationalize that. It might make the season a bit more um, frustrating or what have you. But, I, you know, I don't necessarily think the two things are mutually exclusive. You know? That's absolutely right. So I think it, it is possible for us to to do better and play better and be a bit more exciting and a bit more uh, attractive in how we play. I mean, again, it's the balance, isn't it? Do people want to see us win 5-4? Would that be exciting? Or do we get criticized then for letting in too many goals and for being a bit too open? You know what I mean? It's It's trying yeah. to find this balance between the defensive security that we've all bemoaned the absence mm. of for so long haven't we when you think about it how many times have we had the conversations about well we need to be better at the back we need to concede fewer goals etc etc 15 years maybe exactly and now here we are kind of doing something about that and immediately the balance goes the other way it's like well why aren't we more exciting and more attractive so yeah. i i kind of feel like Whatever we do, <laughs> whatever we do, there's going to be somebody complaining about something. Um, so, but, but, yeah, I, I think the, the point about mutual exclusivity is a really good one because I suppose my answer to the question would kind of have to include the fact that playing in a very pragmatic or let's say defensive, let's say defensive style is not necessarily mm. the best way to achieve the top four. So, you know. It, your chances of playing like that and actually making the top four, I think, are relatively slim. I think there's a lot of teams you need to go and beat and you need to turn one point into three. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, just, yeah, let me ask you something then on that. I mean, do you think the fact that so many of the games that we have played in recent times have been against Liverpool, been against Man City, uh, you know, Chelsea, uh, do you think that in some ways the perception of, of our style as a team is heavily influenced by the approach that we have in those particular games because we're 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 setting up in a very specific way because we're acknowledging the 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 fact that we are a work in progress that there's a gulf yeah. in quality so we're we're in this sort of developmental phase where we're we're trying to address the fact that we've been getting hammered in games like this time and time again um, and maybe we're not bringing enough of what we can do in some of the other games, but because so many of these games have been against teams like that, it, it's sort of that that's part of the perception of, of who we are. Definitely. I think it's part of it. And I know people will say, yeah, but we play like that for 60 minutes against Sheffield United or we play like that against mm. other teams. And, and, I, and that's true. But you've got to remember, Arteta came in 
I think his first two fixtures, weren't they? United and Chelsea. Or it was Bournemouth first, but then he had big games against those opposition. He tried to, you know, hammer some structure into the side very, very quickly. No pre-season. Coronavirus happens again. Mm. Uh, no proper pre-season. No huge, great space of time between the two uh, campaign finishing and the next one starting. And in between this, every two weeks, it seems, we're playing the best team in the country. Uh, and so I think there's just never really been an appropriate moment for him to sort of bed in a different way of working or to, yeah, or just sort of, you know, us evolve away from that. And I, yeah. I, I completely think it does need to happen. Um, and I accept that, like, you know, let's say you're playing at home to Burnley in between playing City and Liverpool. Like, yes, ideally, ideally you completely change the way you play for that fixture but it doesn't it just doesn't always pan out like that and teams don't often have very dual identities mm. and, you know this has kind of in this period become our identity and it will I think take a little bit of time to shift that but I think it, I think it has to happen actually like I'm not sure you know although I said I'd be fine with it I'm not sure playing like this would get us top four um, yeah I don't know. But yeah, I'm no, sure. I, 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 I do think we, you know, there's a real onus on us to to do more in the the other games, um, the the games that we're sort of expected to win, and the games against teams who are going to be competing with us for a top four place. You know, like the Leicester game, like the United game. Um, you know, I don't think a there's the same need to be quite as. Uh, like I can't see him starting Willian as a false nine against Leicester, you know. No, whatever his so. thinking was there, you know, it just uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to. It won't do that. go down well if he does. Let's put it like that. No, no. I mean, there'd be no excuses for uh, for that decision unless it absolutely pays off. I mean, on the subject of Willian, there mm. were a few questions. Uh, a couple on the Patreon. Rambo said, is it time to start worrying about Willian? Axwell said, was giving Willian a three-year deal a mistake? I mean, what <laughs> what do you, what have you made of him in this early period of his Arsenal career? Um, I think I was uh, fairly open to um, the idea that three years was too long for a player mm. uh, of his age. I still think it was. Um, I'm just not quite sure what he's bringing. Mm. You know, I know that Arteta, when he spoke about him, he spoke about him in very glowing terms. Um, you know, about what he could bring to the team in terms of, you know, I sort of had this idea that he might be somebody to kind of knit things together a little bit, if you like, um, to give yeah. the team a bit more structure because he's he is very experienced and he is... You know, someone who's been there and done that. And I just felt maybe he might be somebody who could link things between midfield and attack a bit. But I'm I'm, I'm just not sure what it is that he is bringing us. He was very good in the game against Fulham. He was and has been pretty average since. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure what he's doing week in, week out to, to get the start or what it is that Arteta is trying to get him to do or bring to the to the team. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we could have the discussion about Pepe again, who wasn't particularly great against Man City, even if he did have a, a couple of moments. You know, uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm 
underwhelmed, as I said about him earlier on. I'm a bit underwhelmed by him. Um, and when you come from a team like Chelsea to Arsenal, you know, you've got a bit more to prove to win yeah. fans over. And look, we had a big conversation about structure and I think uh, uh, Willian is kind of Arteta's Mr. Structure and I mm. think that's what he seems to think he is bringing. Uh, yeah. I agree with you that I, I was kind of hoping that he would add a bit more flow to the team. Mm. You know, it, uh, he's a, f- a far superior talent, but, you know, in a funny sort of way, the way that Alex Awobi kind of used to do that kind of joining up the dots job mm. uh, between midfield and attack that we obviously don't have. As a, as a discussion, of course, is a whole other thing. You know, I was hoping Willian could do some of that. And we saw that against Fulham, combining well with his wing back, combining well with the centre forward. We just haven't really seen it since. Yeah, I'm kind of a bit forgiving... A little bit of all our attacking players at the moment. I mean, you know, Aubameyang hasn't scored, has he, since the Fulham game? Mm. Um, you know, and, and I am generally a bit forgiving of that because we just haven't really clicked for the most part in the final third, apart from 20 minutes against Sheffield United. So, yeah. But but without wishing to keep going back to that, there you saw Willian as a kind of advanced central player doing that job, joining the dots, you know, um, you know, being a bit of a, a fulcrum and I, and I would like to see more of that if we are going to continue to use it. Yeah. Okay. Um, here is a question from Nandrabi, who's at nayf1790 on Twitter. He says, hello, gents. Did you hear Tony Adams' comments after the match insisting that a back four is the only way to win titles? Is he right? Hmm. Interesting question. I didn't hear those comments, by the way. I just thought I didn't hear some questions. So. No. Um, well, I don't agree. I honestly don't. I think that there are ways to play a black back three that can win you big, big, big trophies. I mean, Chelsea literally did it not long ago. Mm. Um, Guardiola, I didn't know this, but Guardiola, he, when he started at City, played with a back three and apparently... Almost every season he tries to push the team into a back three. He used a back three against us the other day. He used it at Barcelona to great effect. You know, in theory, it creates you an opportunity to overload in attacking areas. It's all about how you do it. And I think Arsenal's game in the opponent's half at the moment, you know, just is not good enough. And that could be to do with shape, could be to do with numbers, um, but I think it's as much to do with, you know, decisions and ability and all mm. other things. So, I don't know. I mean, listen, I really respect Tony Adams' opinions. He knows a lot about defending, um, but the evidence would suggest it can be done. Mm. Uh, whether or not we can do it playing the way we are now, I strongly doubt. Yeah, that's fair. And I don't think, you know, it's it doesn't have to be a back four to win a title, but I think... I think the longer we go without using a back four, the longer it's going to take us to make progress. Mm. Well, I think I think we're getting there. I do think we're getting there, and I think Gabrielle is a big part of that. Yeah, uh, so, okay, well, let me ask you this then, because we had a question from Gaz Arsenal, who's at Gaz underscore Arsenal, and he says, is the answer to improving us offensively to buy a 15th centre-back, uh, one who is capable of playing in a back four? I mean... <laughs> maybe <laughs> can we sort of add all the other can we like you know 
like you would do with gold, melt down all the other centre-backs and put them all together into one big centre-back uh, and then stick them next to Gabriel and job done. I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but maybe that is it. I mean, I do think he looks like a player who could be all right in that system. Um, I think he's kind of already assumed seniority in that defence, which I did not anticipate um, happening Mm. quite so quickly. And I know that I forewarned he would be named Player of the Month, uh, and indeed he was, but actually I think... There are very, very encouraging signs coming from him. I really think the way in which he copes with kind of the physical dimension of the Premier League is so different to what we've had in the past in that position. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think we're getting there. And, and I think that is the intention. I really believe that that is the intention. And Thomas Part is a player who is used to playing in front of a back four, helps teams play in front of a back four. I think we are going in that direction. Um but do we have the other centre half? I mean, what do you think? Um, do we have the other centre half? Not sure we do, really. Which is can a ma- I, can, yeah. Does anybody like if you haven't got Virgil Van Dyke? And it will be very interesting to see what happens to Liverpool now. I do think there is a conversation worth having around defending and around central defenders of like. Are they? Are they? Is their job just sort of incredibly difficult now? Uh, I mm. do think football has evolved a little bit, and we're seeing so many goals in the Premier League this season. And maybe the standard of defending, as Tony Adams knew it, has dropped. But that's been part of a kind of evolution of the role to have to include other facets of the game. Yeah. Look, I maybe um, they need to be they need to be good footballers now. And that's not to say that the players of the past were not good footballers, but it is a, you know, it's hugely important now. Uh, they really need to be comfortable on the ball. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Liverpool without Van Dyke will be interesting because does Van Dyke raise the level of Matip and Gomez? I think he probably does. Of course. You yeah. know? I, me- I remember Matip before Van Dyke, so for mm. sure. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean... Is Gabriel capable of raising the level of some of the defenders that we have? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. I mean, I think like you, the the, the start he's had to his career at Arsenal has been very encouraging. Um, but it's too early to say that. Um, if you if you if you're playing a back four, if you said right, okay, Saturday or Sunday, whenever we play, we're going to a back four. Who of the defenders we have would you feel comfortable next to Gabriel in there? The ones we have available or just all of the central defenders that we have? I think all of them that we have you can include in this. It's a really good question because I think in terms of what we do and how we want to play and how we want to use the ball Mm. you're either looking at Louise because he's Mm. a good footballer or Mustafi because he's also good on the ball but both of those players give me fucking heart attacks (laughs) you know Uh, they brown my pants um, with too much frequency you know so 
if you're going for something for the future, is it Rob Holding? I, look, yeah. I, again, here we are, eight central defenders on the books, and we have question marks. Well, I think, I think that's to, why the answer to the question is yes. Like, yeah. do we need another centre-half? Almost certainly. We're all thinking, hoping it might have been Saliba. That feels a long way away right now. So, mm. you know, if you're looking at Gabriel as one half of that partnership, I think it's a really... I mean, I, I think I'd probably go for Louise at the moment, but we've not seen Louise as a right-sided centre-half in a two very much at Arsenal. And no. who knows what that will look like. Um, on, the, on this subject, by the way, Mark Morrow... On Twitter, at Monty Mark says, with Saliba not eligible for the Europa League and most of our centre-backs injured or not quite ready to return, would you play Louise and Gabriel on Thursday or would you make some sort of hybrid partnership to avoid injury slash fatigue before the Leicester game? Really good question, this. Um, so uh, who have we not got? We've not got... Chambers. Well, we don't know how bad holding is. Yeah, Chambers. Mustafi. Uh, Socrates, who's not in the squad. Saliba's not in the squad. So of the players we have available, it's Louise and it's Gabriel. I suppose you could, play, you could play... You could play... and Kalasinac. Yeah, well, yes. what I was going to say is you could play... Maybe you could play a back three, put Louise, Kalasinac, and... Well, we don't have anyone else for the right side, do we? I mean, could you put Cedric in there? Well, he's off with the under twenty threes. <laughs> he's busy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think Cedric will play, but I mean, I imagine he'll play right back or right wing back. Mm. Um, maybe we're going to have to ask. You know, I mean, Gabriel's twenty two. I'm not especially worried about him. Um, I'd like to give Kieran Tierney a rest, given mm. his injury history. You know. Um, and in an ideal world, you'd probably want to give David Luiz a rest given his age, but I don't know if that's going to be possible. Yeah, he's got some thinking to do there, doesn't he? What else do you think we'll see in that team on Thursday in Vienna? Maitland Niles. I wouldn't be surprised if we got a start for Party, Thomas Party. We never we really will, talked about that, actually, um, in, in part one of the show. Were you at all surprised that he didn't start? No. I thought he wouldn't start, especially after his sort of comments around it. Um, and his post-match comments kind of reaffirmed that. Were you surprised? Not really. A little disappointed, though. I was disappointed, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I wanted to see him play, um, as you always do with a new signing. Um, I just I wonder how, how, how complex are the instructions and the systems that he has to, as Arteta referenced, he said, you know, we've got a lot of... I can't remember the exact phrase that he used, but he said something along the lines of... Um, well, he meant mechanics, structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. But how complicated can it be? Like if you're bringing in a 19-year-old who doesn't know his arse from his elbow in terms of professional football at that point in his career, maybe. Yeah. But this is Thomas Partey, who's played in a very structured environment, let's remember, uh, at Atletico Madrid. Mm, yeah, and he's very, very used to following instructions. Absolutely. So maybe it is information overload or whatever it was, but I was a bit disappointed regarding that. So I think maybe to... I think we might see a stronger team than than we might imagine. Do you? I think, yeah. Uh, you I, played with the under-23s, because I think those guys... I think that fixture's getting them ready for this. I think they'll play. 
I think there was Nelson, Willock, Cedric. Mm. Who Acacia, else? Maybe. Mm, I can't remember. So, yeah, no, Nelson, I've got in front of me. Smith Rowe. Smith Rowe. So I don't think Smith Rowe will play, for I example. Said, uh, yeah, Saliba can't play. Saliba can't. Um, so I think, yeah, Willock will probably play and Cedric will probably play, I would guess. Yeah, maybe. Do you think Bert Leno will play? That's an interesting one. Um, it is, and I think he will. You think he will? Why? Just think there's such a clear delineation between number one and number two now. Mm. And is this the most like difficult? This is this the most difficult game of the group? Hmm. I have no idea how good Dundalk are. I have no idea what sort of level that is. I must say, but I think on paper. It looks it. Mm. Um, mm. So maybe, you know, is, is this the kind of game where you've got a striker who hasn't scored for X amount of games in Aubameyang that maybe if you give him an hour, he gets back in the groove again and he's ready for Leicester? Same with Thomas Partey. Give him 60 minutes, 70 minutes. Get him up Maybe. to speed, you know. I think it'll be I a, think perhaps a stronger team than we might imagine. I think, uh, I don't think Oba will play, but I think, because, you know, you've got Lacazette and Ketia, both mm. potentially fresh. But I think Party will play. I think Leno will play. I think we've just said probably Gabriel and Louise will play. Maitland Niles will play. Mm. Um, El Nenny. Yeah. I mean, of course, El Nenny. Of course. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting one. Um, I'm looking forward to watching Partey, seeing what he's about. I mean, there were a couple mm. of moments, even against City, where there were, he just separated from his man a little bit. And I thought, oh, hang on. We haven't had loads of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it your question or my question? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I've got one here from the Discord. Go on. Um, and we might just... Uh, Use this one to finish off. Uh, have you have you been reading Arsene Wenger's book? So I must confess, I've been a very bad boy, and I have skipped ahead and read the. You read the Arsenal. end. Yeah, I know. What happens? happens what happens? He gets sacked at the end. He gets sacked. <gasps> I know. I know. It's such a twist as well because the whole way through, everyone loves him. It's like Sixth Sense or something. Um, I've read the the Arsenal section i have to go back and read about him you mm. know, running around the fields of alsace or whatever right. it is well How I, about you i'm doing the audiobook of course um and that you know i started at the start crazily stupidly i started wow. at the start so there's some there's some quite interesting stuff in there um i spoke about it with philippe a little bit on the arsecast on on friday about you know his grounding and his outlook on things uh, but he's been doing the rounds. Obviously, he's been on pretty much every radio show and TV show and talk show yeah. um, from here to King- Kingdom Come. He's been doing some doing live Mars events story. and all that kind of... Yeah, the Mars Bar story. <laughs> How many times? Um, Perfectly crafted routine at this stage. Yeah, I think one of the one of the the more interesting interviews was with, uh, with David, David Ornstein. Um, it was yeah, a fairly short one. And I was quite interested in what he had to say about Sesk. So the question from Mez, M-E-S, on the Discord is, why would you have a buyback clause for Sesk 
if Wenger had no intention of buying him back, which is basically what he said uh, to David in that interview. It was like, I tell players, you know, if you want to go or if you think the grass is greener, then, you know, that's up to you, but there's no way back. Yeah, he, I mean, I'll, I'll try and get it uh, in front of me, but he basically said you needed to make a, a bit of an example of him, didn't he? It was sort of alluded to that idea. Yeah, that was kind of it. It was like, well, yeah, if 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 you go and you think you can come back, then everybody will do the same. Or something. Yeah. It was general guidance for me to make the players realise that if mm. you leave here, you don't come back. It was a way to retain the players who wanted to see if the grass was greener elsewhere. I did it for Thierry Henry, Sol Campbell and Jens Lehmann, but they were different. The young players who left, I didn't like to do it. Hmm. Hmm. It's a puzzler, isn't it? I, I mean, my, my short answer is that he didn't negotiate the intricacies of the deal. Uh, and maybe the club, you know, put that in. Yeah. Uh, you know, to protect themselves. Maybe they didn't know even if Arsene Wenger would still be the manager in a few years' time. You know what I mean? I mean yeah, 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 yeah. That was not a certainty. Certainly Seth's career looked like it would last longer than, than Arsene's time at Arsenal. So I think it was sensible from the club, even if the manager didn't do it. I mean, I think it was a mistake from Arsene Wenger to not bring him back. Yeah. I'm, uh, I mean... Undoubtedly. There's no... Because people talked at the time, we we just bought Mesut Ozil the year before, Henry. Um, mm. You can't have two good players, Andrew. That's one of the, <laughs> the famous rules. That's of a, my general guidance is that you should never have two good <laughs> my players. My general guidance, yeah. <laughs> but so you know what it, what it was, um, you know, in what he said to David was, it was a personal decision. There were no yeah. good footballing reasons for it not to happen. So that yeah. I found that both interesting and somewhat infuriating, to be honest. Because this wasn't like a decision that was made. I guess, I suppose, he is thinking about... Is he thinking about the overall good of the the club? If this is his own perspective on if a player leaves, you don't bring him back because it helps you retain players. If he goes against that, you know, is he undermining himself and that position that the club have and does it make it? But, you know, when you look back on it, there was no good reason not to do that deal. No good reason from a footballing perspective. No. And there wasn't really a better deal Arsenal could do. That's Mm. the thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not like... Yes, maybe it makes you look a little bit smaller that you take a player back in that scenario. But, Mm. I mean, I, I... I think clearly it would have been the right thing. But I, I think that's a good interview. You can listen to it for free, I think, yeah. on David's podcast. And it, it pushes him on some stuff that he doesn't quite get to on the book. But we're going mm. to do a one about the book, aren't we? Uh, we are at some point, you know, once you sort of get around the houses. and uh, <laughs> So read the beginning. Read the beginning, exactly. And, you know, we can talk about that. So, yeah, we will uh, we will do that at some point. Um, okay, the game on Thursday is at 6 o'clock. So, um uh, we'll look forward to that, of course. Uh, our first European action, Rapid Vienna versus Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, for now, though, we better leave it there because we've been going a long time and uh, people have got busy lives to enjoy in lockdown. Go again. on, then. Off you go with your lives, guys. <laughs> have, have a nice life. Yeah, you just enjoy your lives. Um, oh, by the way, can oh, I add one yeah, thing? Quickly? Of course. So, I went to the Palladium 
and saw us speak. And, you know... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was sort of uh, risky from the old uh, COVID perspective. So I'm going to set that issue to one side. But it was so lovely to be in a room. And obviously everybody there was an Arsenal fan. Um, and when Arsene Wenger came out uh, and everybody was just, you know, chanting one Arsene Wenger, it was the first time in you know, months now, months and months, that I'd heard a group of Arsenal fans congregated in one place mm. singing together. And it was a genuinely sort of special moment. And it reminded me of sort of the beauty and the brilliance of being part of a crowd. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I felt very uh, lucky to be there. And I just desperately, I mean, it, you know, I, that's keeping me going. The idea that sure. at some point down the line, we will have that again. Yeah. Um, how was he at the thing? Because, you know, the the number of things that I've watched, the number of the interviews that I've watched, you know, they varied or his um, his interest in them has varied a little <laughs> bit, right? Uh, depending yeah. on the, the format and what have you. But it's hard not to get a sense that he's, he's still quite hurt by yeah. the disconnection between him and and Arsenal, not necessarily the decision to fire him or for him to leave, but yeah. what's happened since. I think um, maybe again it was with David, uh, where he's asked if he's got any contact with anybody at the top of the club, and mm. he just said no. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think the you know certainly the era that immediately followed his departure you know i think he felt personally quite distanced from that group and a little bit affronted by that group i think he really enjoyed the palladium and i'll tell you why simply because the reception that he got this wasn't him in front of a crowd of you know this wasn't graham norton's audience or it wasn't yeah, a journalist yeah. he doesn't know it was full of arsenal fans who revered him and it was actually really nice to be among that atmosphere because it was so toxic. You know, you almost forget how toxic it got mm. towards the end of his reign. And people who adored him were sort of desperate for him to leave um, in some cases. And it was lovely to sort of see that uh, some of that hurt healed. And yeah. I think consequently, he relaxed into it and he enjoyed it more. But there was something he said, and I forget exactly what he said on the night about about his last few years at the club. And I was chatting to someone after and they sort of said to me that they got the impression that he was almost saying that he, he kind of wished or he kind of felt it was the club's decision to make about whether he stayed or he went and that he stayed out of a sense of duty and that almost like it was on the club. Do you know what I mean? To be brave and sack him. Mm. But they didn't. <laughs> and he, And there was a slight feeling of like, why should I resign that someone at the club had to show authority and make a decision yeah. and they, they never did well i mean they did in that they stan Kroenke gave him a, a new contract in 2017 yeah. you know so yeah yeah look it, it's a, a big discussion we could have a, another day i think um but, but yeah it, yeah it's interesting and i also 
you know, I think David's first question to him was, you know, why are you doing this so much? You know, you don't need to do all this publicity to sell your book and mm. sell. People are stuck at home. They're bored. They want to read it. I, I find it interesting that Arsene has kind of, you know, because there's no way a publisher or a PR person could make him do all these things. Uh, yeah, maybe. But I, I think that there has been a big push on their part to to publicize the book. And I think he signed up for a lot of stuff that maybe he shouldn't necessarily have yeah. signed up for. I feel like maybe there's a, a, an element of overkill um, because how many, uh, particularly when a lot of the people uh, asking him questions don't... <laughs> yeah, don't know what they're talking about. Like he did a yeah. he did an interview here on Irish television, and I genuinely can't think of a worse person in the world to interview him than the guy who actually did. You know, nice. just just no concept of football or or, or anything else. You know, um, yeah. so I feel like maybe he could have cherry picked a few to do more in depth stuff with rather than do as much as he did. But you know, I think, I, so. I think it's. It's probably a push from the marketing department and the publishers and and what have you. Um, and we haven't had him on here, which is the real. You know, a lot of design. a lot of people ask me about that. Like, did mm. why not? He's done pretty much everything else, and you know what? I didn't even try. Mm. I didn't try. Um, which isn't to say that at some point I wouldn't love to interview Arsene Wenger because I absolutely would. I'd love to sit down and do a podcast with Arsene Wenger, as I'm sure you would too. It'd be an amazing thing to talk to him, particularly, you know, when we could ask him questions that other people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And not because they're not brave enough to ask or anything like that, but because, you know, there are probably things that we would ask um, that just aren't of interest to the more general audience that some of these interviews have been catered for, right? Mm. But I just did, I just felt like this would have been the wrong time to do it because of the, because of the, you saturation. know, the, yeah, the saturation and the, the, the fact that it was going to be primarily based around a book, which from what we sort of heard a little bit of in the months leading up to it, wasn't going to be the kind of book that many people have built it up to be, you know? It's not a tell-all. No. no. No, and I don't no. know that it was, you know, in our in our terrible in our, in our wildest dreams, it's ridiculous to say in your wildest dreams you might find out what a football manager thought about a transfer like, you know, Chu Young Park. Yeah. You know, that's I'm sure we can all have wilder dreams than that. But it was never going to be that book. It was never going to be, well, you know what? That Robin Van Persie guy, he's a right cunt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought he was a great lad, and it turns out he was a massive cunt. Well, fucking blow me down with a feather. It was never going to be that book. So I think in, in maybe in some ways it, it suffers, um, you know, because of that, because that's what people want to know. But maybe down the line we can convince him to give up an hour of his time. Mm. When we can I also wonder, uh, just in terms of him doing the rounds so much, like uh, this is a guy who for 20 years – you know, had the the most busy schedule where he was dealing with the media, mm. huge profile all the time. And I, it would be weird if he, well, maybe it wouldn't be, but I would, it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't miss a little bit of that, you know? Like, I think he, I think some, you know, if you see his press, remember his press conferences, I think mm. he enjoys the game of it a bit. Uh, he it actually, wasn't in an intellectual way. You yeah, know? he does mention that. I think he mentions that in the book. 
at some point mm. where he talks about the the relationship that he has or had with the press and that, you know, in his press conferences, um, you know, his relationship with them was was quite good in that he was uh, fairly open with them. But he's, he talks quite a bit about the, you know, the, the stuff at the start when he arrived at the club and those stories that went around and how he had to confront, you know, these really vile rumours and, and everything else. And it's how often did we say... Um, you know, on this podcast or whatever, that when he talks to the French press, he's different. He's much more open. You know, you get things out of him when he's talking to uh, journalists in his home country. Maybe it's because they're friendly, but certainly that um, that incident definitely closed off uh, some avenues for for the press in the UK, and and rightly so for the people who are involved in in that kind of thing. But in general, I think it, his relationship was fairly open because they could ask him anything. And he was always Absolutely. honest with them. And he, he, he talks about that a bit. But look, let's we say better this. leave it there. They've got lives, Andrew. Yeah. They've got lives to lead. They do. And less time to lead them now that we've been waffling on. So look, we'll <laughs> leave it there. Thank you as ever for being here. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay healthy, wash your hands, all that. And we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.